Her name, the Watermelon Woman. That's right, Watermelon Woman. Is Watermelon Woman her first name, her last name, or is it her whole name? I don't know, but girlfriend has it going on, and I think I've figured out what my project's gonna be on. I'm gonna make a movie about her. I'm gonna find out what her real name is, who she was and is, everything I can find out about her. Because something in her face, something in the way she looks and moves is, is serious, is interesting. And I'm gonna just tell you all about it. In this week's episode, I was able to get with artist and filmmaker Cheryl Dunyer. On episode 21, me and Kat discussed her feature film, The Watermelon Woman, and I was totally moved. We discussed Cheryl's foray into video art as a student at Rutgers, her influences as a filmmaker, linking with filmmaker and producer Ava DuVernay, and her career as an episodic television director. You can check out The Watermelon Woman and the early works of Cheryl Dunyer, six short films by a groundbreaking female filmmaker, on the streaming service Canopy for free. And again, that's Canopy with a K. You can catch Cheryl on Twitter at C. Dunyer and at Jingletown Films. Also, you can catch Cheryl on IG at Cheryl Dunyer and Jingletown underscore films. Special thanks to Chanel for making this interview happen. I greatly appreciate you. Kat will catch you guys next week. Peace to the world. Enjoy. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well, definitely. You know, the best that we can do, you know, tossing these plates up and, and around as the world, you know, turns in crazy ways. So Yeah, it's uh it's for sure turning all right. I don't know where we're going, but it's turning somewhere. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really yeah. is. Are you currently on the West Coast right now? Yes, I am. I uh I'm in, in I say I'm in Wakanda. <laughs> um, but which is actually Oakland. So I mean, hey, that's that's about as close as West Coast Wakanda is gonna get. So right, right. Well, you know, <laughs> it's a state of mind too. So, but but definitely, you know, the ship landed here, and so we are inhabiting the space. Because um, <laughs> you were born in Philly, right? Are you raised in Philly? I was raised in Philly. Yeah. Okay. How is it uh, from um, like the East Coast? Uh, switching over to the West Coast, how is it? It's been years. So most of my adult life has been on the West Coast at this point. But um, comparable cities, I mean, there's only a handful of cities that are, you know, chocolate cities, as they say. So <laughs> it's it really is, you know, a great, great historic old one, you know, and Oakland is sort of the wild West version of it. So I've, I've been blessed to land and, and you know, live in, in two great black cities oh that's cool because yeah like I, I was born in um in dc it's funny like growing up in dc and like suburban dc and maryland and then uh living in red states was a definite uh pivot to say the very least um mm -hmm. i'm currently in texas now so it's kind of oh, um, right yeah so the only like i guess like really like black cities would be like uh fort worth and houston but other than that it's houston, pretty... yeah. dallas houston they say yes that that whole too yeah. yeah and then there's um they say you know i don't understand why people even you know talk about portland or seattle or anything like that but <laughs> um it's chicago it's detroit you know it's philly new york um yeah. i don't know why people would even say boston um, it's LA to some degree, but it's more like Long Beach, but you know, there is, you know, some, some stuff in LA and it's, you know, that's really about it. Think about, um, somewhere in Florida, but Florida man's always there. I don't know which city it is in Florida, but it's, oh, no, and, it's, it's Atlanta, and it's Atlanta. It's yeah, Atlanta. Yeah, but Florida man's going to attack and strike at, you know, at any, at any time, so. Mm. <laughs> 
true. It's another state of mind, right? <laughs> this, I mean, these COVID things have brought out such states of mind among people, haven't they? Um, yeah, for the better and for the greater worse. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just I'm definitely trying to stay safe. Um, the governor of Texas, he he was actually pretty terrible to start, and he's like, I mean, he's kind of gotten on board, but it's like through a lot of hand holding, and so. Texas is definitely a wild state. Yeah, I, I've been watching. I have been watching. Yep. Yeah. So, so what can I do you for, sir? I definitely wanted to, you know, kind of get a sense of what your career kind of has been, sort of you being like a young filmmaker to transitioning now to deepen your career and kind of where you wanted to go with your filmmaking. So, you know, to start at the very, very beginning <laughs> uh, for your first film that you made, um, Janine. So about that time you made Janine, I think you were around maybe about 24 years old, mm-hmm. which, you know, is definitely a volatile time in a person's you know, young life. At that time period and even a little bit before, what made you decide that you wanted to get into filmmaking? Let's see. I had just um, started grad school around that time at Rutgers and had made a piece before that um, that got me into grad school, got me onto a graduate temple with a, like a sort of senior thesis piece. It was about, it was called Wild Thing by Sapphire. Okay. Um, it was the first piece that I, um, uh, it was her poem. Uh, and I, I just layered it with my own images. And it, oh, wow. like people really loved it. It was very experimental, and it was you know just figuring out this film language, you know, using the city, Philly scape, and just you know the issues that were in it. it was about the Central Park Five, and uh, I had a friendship with Sapphire at that point. You know, I was one of those sort of fans who you know just she let me stay with her. We we hung out. We you know we were kind of fast friends, and she's gone on to do wonderful things. And I haven't been in touch with her since then. But oh. that piece took the atten- got the attention of some folks at Rutgers in New Brunswick, and I went there on a full scholarship in their MFA art program. And, and, and Janine was the first piece that I made. And I didn't know what a, being a studio artist was. I was just the only video person in the program, and there were painters and sculptors, and everybody was you know, making art. So I was trying to do things I mean, you know, in, in my studio, and it just didn't work, so I just went back to video and this is the first piece that I, I made because I was thinking about this person and um, I thought I could just use my archive and, and, and that's really where it landed it was that simple. Would you say you know she and her presence in your life kind of had like a profound effect on you as a young person? Um, sure when I was a young high school you know student you know, I, I did have a crush on her and it was a, you know, a thing that it was, you know, there was race and class and you know, so many things involved beyond just the sexuality and, and sort of being in the closet as a teenager, but not having kind of two different lives, just like the piece says. Um, yeah. So there was definitely a profound effect that, you know, you carry some suitcases around through life and, you know, being in Philly and I don't even remember why it came up. I think I was talking about my sexuality at, or, or, or I don't even know why I wanted to tell that story, but I did. I'm sure the tape, because it was videotape at that time, told, <laughs> I, you know, told a variety of stories, but the Janine story was good. And I was like, hey, let me blow out some candles. And it t- kind of turned out pretty cool. I just cut the three together. And I think, I don't remember who we were reading in, you know, in what class, Martha Rossler or somebody, I don't know, had some great professors there, some fantastic readings about film form and politics and, you know, making activist art. And so I, you know, did that. And uh, I just, you know, went on to make more. Yeah. Janine was definitely, you know, very intimate and very personal. For that being your first project, you know, while in college, did you find difficulty with getting that personal with it? Or did, did you not really have like any hindrances with that? It was around the same time that I was meeting folks in my, you know, life as a young artist, act, activist, living sort of in Philly, doing events and, and meeting people. And I was introduced by Joe Beam to Essex Hemphill. And one of my professors at Temple had been Michelle Parkinson, who introduced me to just, uh, you know, everybody in the kind of Black, gay, cultural productive scene, poets, 
you know, Audrey Lord was around. It was just a, a budding time. So it was just the time to really, and, you know, going to New York more and more and getting involved in sort of the culture that was happening, the culture wars were going on, you know, going to museums. It was just a, a wonderful time. So it was a time to express yourself, you know, yeah. and I think, and, and make a mark for yourself and put yourself in the picture. There was that sort of activism about it. And I think really having picked up like on Audrey Lord, you know, you have to be doing your work, you know, and that was sort of what I was doing, you know, are you being your sister actor or your, you know, poet self or whatever I was, you know, trying to become. And that was about it. And, you know, my story is, uh, continues to be a valid one as, as any other story in, in narrative out there. And that's what I believe in. And, and that allows me to function, you know? So yeah. I think that was the first thing to get right in my head. And, and then therefore that needed a media and, and it needed a whole, you know, you know, it needed documentaries, which are a plethora of, but it also need narratives. And so um, why not play with narrative? And so that's how I really started playing with narrative, which led me to the watermelon woman <laughs> and, uh, and onward. Nice. So would you say, you know, growing up uh, being a part of and in the mix in the scene, would you say that had more of an effect on you as a filmmaker or was there role models in the filmmaking industry that you had, you know, before and while you were in college? You know, there were, I don't know if there were role models. I mean, I think I was trying to make something new. I was exploring it as, as an artist. There were new ways to think about making work, which was looking at feature films. And again, making longer narratives. So I was looking at people who are doing that. And that was the beginning of sort of queer indie wood, you know, Christine Vachon and Good Machine and all those sort of early pieces, Todd Haynes and Tom Kalin and Go Fish. And, you know, those, those things were happening at that time. So my thing was about like, how can I tell a bigger story? It wasn't yeah. about, you know, I, I was looking at work, but there was no work that was telling that story, I, you know, that I wanted to tell. There were lesbian films uh, I can't even remember some of the, the big features that are out there but um they were not they were white and so yeah. I wanted to see bodies like mine and people that were like me you know sort of quirky and fun and and you know accepting of who they are and not struggling and you know whatever in in the life not like coming out so that's really what what was going on for me yeah, I can definitely tell that, especially from going back to your older work, you know, trying to tell that perspective from a dramatic and also comedic standpoint. I mean, I, I think that's the kind of what life is. I mean, we all have the drama and, you know, the struggle that we have to go through, but there's times when we all laugh. And so I always appreciate when you kind of blended, you know, that together. Speaking about, you know, some more of your older work in She Don't Fade, when you were, it's uh, black and white, when you, it's like the still of, you, you know, trying to mix, you know, um, you're in one relationship, but you're trying to pivot and, you know, date another woman. But in the creation of that film, uh, you mix the narrative, but also with a confessional perspective where you leave in moments of either you or a cast member directing, you know, the actor. And it's kind of like blending of fiction and reality together. Mm -hmm. What was your thought behind that? Because I thought it was a pretty interesting way to tell a story. I guess I was like watching a lot of and reading a lot about the sort of auteur French, you know, cinema, Godard and, and things like that, which sort of broke the line. And I thought also what was more important about, uh, about what I was doing was happening in front of the lens was happening also behind the lens. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the story of, of work getting made and who makes it is so interesting, you know, because who comes together to, you know, record and, and put something out there, you know, I, th I think that, and, and, and believe in one project as a group, you know, that kind of collaborative idea and those lives who, you know, you know, and energy that people put into it. I just think that's fascinating. Yeah, that was, that's why I, I, I played with that. Oh, cool. And uh, even going back a little bit of what you were saying, as far as just wanting to see, you know, Black queer representation, even post, you know, the period of when coming out, when you just, you know, you're out and you're yourself, you know, in the world. In She Don't Face, you know, there's, you know, an intimate scene where you're making love to another character. During this time period, like you kind of alluded to, like any movie that did kind of, you know, represent sort of sexuality 
or even queerness is typically done by white men. Whenever you were creating um, She Don't Face or your other works, was showing Black queer love in all those different kind of forms the goal for you, or was it something that you weren't cognizant of and you were just kind of, you were going, you were, you know, putting it on camera just kind of as like second nature? Yes and yes. I mean, it was very important for me to, um, I hadn't seen, and I never had seen two Black women together in anything, you yeah. know, that wasn't porn, right? Not that I watched <laughs> yeah. porn or anything, or it was even accessible at that point in, in the way it is today. I mean, you had to actually actively go and get porn if you're going to watch it, because there was no channels or anything like that. There was no, you had to go to a theater or go get books or videos or something, right? So it yeah. was it was not accessible if we can even imagine um <laughs> so you know sexuality was way different in, in 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 at that point never seeing yourself in more popular or independent or under underground cinema never seeing yourself on television i wasn't a member of the cosmos you know nobody, <laughs> nobody was there so how are you forming yourself how are you making your life so it's so just really important for me to to put every aspect of it, you know, the smaller moments to, you know, the intimate moments. I mean, I just wanted to kind of put Black life, love, relationship out there and, you know, in, in an interesting way, right? I think that was the other aspect of it. Make it yeah. interesting too. No, he definitely did that. You definitely pulled it off. And I would even suspect, you know, I wasn't of age at that time period, but I can even understand how even trying to get, you know, pornography and kind of be in the mix like that, even trying to express your sexuality, especially if you're queer and a black queer person and a black queer woman, I can see how definitely in, in the public, there wasn't many safe spaces for that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. This is very true. Yeah. So, so true. Another one of your previous projects, um, The Pollock and the Passion, where it kind of goes through this one night of where this big Pollock dinner with the different characters involved. I thought it was pretty interesting for the fact that you had the actors themselves kind of analyze the characters that they were playing. It was creating, you know, different paths uh, for queer analysis from multiple perspectives, whether it be from uh, men or, for, or from women. I thought it was pretty cool it, it, it kind of felt like dvd commentary before there was dvds um, mm -hmm. whenever you were creating that project was that something that the actors kind of thought about doing themselves or was it something that you thought of giving them the guidance to to get their perspective from that i think it was about you know having a video production at a kind of video art level you know kind of getting in that mindset trying to make a piece for you know the gallery world more than sort of the theater world this is video art at this time this is not me making you know narrative film completely it's also making something unique to the video art world so that was in my mind but it was working in a variety of ways you know but i had to make these pieces to graduate and you know it was also exploding on the other hand too because it was being seen in festivals as you know great narrative so i was just or because it was the first time people were seeing stuff like this. So the potluck, I was thinking of it as a serial of my real life, you know, of a young black lesbian type of thing. Because that woman in, Gail, who was in the film, and I, were, whom I met in She Don't Fade, we were in a relationship. And it was sort of looking at that too. So it's putting myself out there. My personal was political was a big thing for me at that time. And, you know, that was just my tribe. Really, I'm still, you know, it's like, let's make a film. Come on, I got the equipment, you know. I'll, I'll write the script, you know. Let's do this, you know, you get the lights. And then what happened is you have to do reshoots. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't get the equipment, so, I, or I could get them, or the, their schedules changed. So I had them come and just sit down and talk about what they did. And that's sort of the birth of a junior mentory, you know, where you, have them rethink and talk about their character and just go through a lot of questions. And it was also an editorial thing. I was running into holes in the edit. So, you know, I just came up with an interesting way to cut it in, play with it. So this sounds like a lot of, I don't know if it makes sense, but community-based creation with you. Like you're, you're picking the minds of people that you respect and people that you have these relationships with 
and you know creating these these movies together. Is that about right? It was just it was just my little group of people. That's all. It was just like my little friends, the people I used to hang out with. That's you know that that's who it was. We were little baby dykes, and <laughs> and that's who made the film. And in my group, you know, I'm sure there were other people doing things too. But you know, definitely that was my group. There were people doing stuff in. I, I'm trying to think of. Jocelyn Taylor is making work. Shari Frilo, who's now at Sundance as a director, was making work. Tons of people were making little, little experimental, playful things that I was running into at film festivals. So it was an explosive time in, in people trying to. Thomas Harris, who's now doing more public television documentary work. Uh, I'm trying to think of who from that time is still making stuff. Uh, you think about one of your Turner and Rose Troche, they're still kind of doing things. It was, it was a, lot, a lot of people, a lot of people. So it was, it was great to be making a new cinema, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That hadn't been there before and, and by any means necessary. Wow, that's pretty cool. It's like sound advice or whatever. It's like comics, conventions, and cosplay or whatever. It's like ladies' night, or whatever. It's like wrestling, or whatever. It's like parenting, or whatever. It's like anime, or whatever. It's like spiritual warfare, or whatever. It's like great friends, awesome people, coming around doing what we do best, or whatever. You should watch, listen, and follow whatever it's like a podcast or whatever now kind of taking kind of that mindset and looking at kind of the technical aspect of you creating the watermelon woman what was kind of the process behind that did you find it a bit difficult to write and create and get funded or did you think you know that process the creation process of the watermelon woman was easy to put together I would say it was difficult, the whole process to, you know, really go into yourself and write a script of that nature and do all that sort of research and really have all that stuff together. So that was a long time for me. It, it came after receiving funding and, and, and having made Greetings from Africa with Good Machine and, and seeing uh, that and going on the road with that to the Berlin Film Festival and seeing how it really was done. And I was there with like, I think little posters for help, help fund my film, The Watermelon Woman type of thing, <laughs> little Xeroxes. And, and I realized that's not the way it's done. And I had to kind of come back and rethink, you know, after seeing a lot of films, it was, I think that really changed it. Realizing that, you know, I was, I could tell the story in a bigger way and it needed to hit a lot more than just Cheryl and her gang. So I had to really dig. And I think that's where the growth came was like leaving the country and seeing work and traveling with, you know, some of my other stuff and, and, and actually working with Good Machine, which is a great opportunity to make a short. And we were going to do The Watermelon Woman, but then I went off and sort of did the artist grant route and I was successful with it. You know, I got a couple grants and, and then, uh, met different friends in the art world who we were starting to collaborate together, Zoe Leonard and I, and sort of went, you know, realized I didn't really have the coins that I needed. So I was just going to build it in process, you know, and, and see if we can do the pictures and that would raise some money. And then we do this and that. Meanwhile, still applying for grants. And then I got the NEA and that really changed things. And we, yeah. we just were sailing after that. And, and that's how it was made. And it was made with a lot of students and all those friends, everybody from every video, art piece I made was, was there collaborating X's, O's, Z's, Y's. <laughs> it was really an interesting moment and it happened really, you know, it was a lot of love and a lot of hard work, let me tell you. And, a lot of, uh, and, and it was run by um, Alex Juhas, who was my, uh, who played Martha Page in the photos um, yeah. and was my partner at the time. So, you know, there was a lot of love and it was also a reflection of a relationship too, in a weird way, in, in its telling you know, interracial lesbian relationship was there as well. Yeah, because I was going to say, because Watermelon Woman definitely feels like, you know, meta commentary on who you were in like 1995 and 1996. You know, obviously you're, you know, 
a coming of age, you know, queer woman trying to navigate, you know, your own blackness, but kind of doing so in predominantly white spaces. And, you know, the film itself, you know, it's kind of like if, you know, obviously, you know, the film within the film, you know, you're trying to uplift, you know, black queer voices, but you yourself as a director, you're trying to do that, you know, for all of your project, it seems like, you know, during the filming of The Watermelon Woman, was it difficult to kind of process, you know, your life versus the film in real time? Process my life? What do you mean by that? Can you read? well you know kind of you know the character that you play in the movie you know it's someone that is trying to kind of find guidance on who she is through creating this documentary about the watermelon woman and also you know trying to navigate and trying to juggle you know this new interracial relationship and kind Mm -hmm. of you know the outside pressure from you know friends and also trying to maintain you know you know, the film itself, did you kind of find like you were kind of like overlapping like your real life and also the movie at times? I think, you know, again, the watermelon, the, the, the watermelon woman is a fiction, <laughs> like I said at the end. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not really my life at that, you know, my, I, 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 those experiences I wrote about, some of them I've had, not all of them, you know. So it, it really is just a character, you know, and but it's it's real, you know. At the same time, you know. So I was just you know, commenting about that, in a way, even about just storytelling. You know, we have we're always writing from ourselves. You know, there's a bit of you know every writer, screenwriter in every character that they kind of deeply you know care about and create. So it was that too, you know. So yeah, struggles are real. <laughs> yes, the struggle is forever <laughs> real. Yes. <laughs> what can you say? Yeah. In the movie, for me, one of the characters that it definitely kind of stuck out to me and who I, I was definitely thinking about when the movie first finished, when I first watched it, was Tamara, your best friend in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of how it's interesting how, you know, there's a lot of things that she's, you know, kind of right about and a lot of things that she's wrong about. But I felt like she kind of had a balance that was grounded in reality. Um, Mm -hmm. Whenever you were creating characters, you know, in film, you know, is it always in front of your mind to make sure that, yes, we're, we're, even though, you know, this is a comedy in some respect, you know, I want to keep my characters based in reality. And even, even if it's not all real experiences, there's some sort of experience I can kind of draw from. Yeah, I mean, you know, our I never worked at a video store. That's one thing. Um, but I always <laughs> wanted to. So this was a fantasy about me wanting to work at a video store and who I would be if yeah. I did and, and the things I would do if I were. So that was kind of one one story that went, went on. Valerie, you know, there, I, had a, I have a best friend named Paula. She's not African-American or Black or whatever. She's Jewish. So those are sort of the, and I always, you know, I had other black fr- friends, women, men, you know, whatnot. But um, some of those experiences are, are woven in there. Some of our sort of young banter, you know, I have a bantering relationship with this person, yeah, um, which is fun, you know, and it's long. It's been since we met in lesbian gay youth group in 1980. Oh wow. Um, which is like history there, right? You know, <laughs> oldest people's moms and shit, you know, like that. So I definitely feel like, you know, it's a lot of truth there in, in, in those characters. And it was a lot of fun making them and, and bringing them to life and putting myself out there and, and stuff like that. Cool, cool. Definitely, I can definitely see that. After the film was released, The Watermelon Woman, it won several awards at you know film festivals but it was harshly criticized by conservatives at the time did you feel that the backlash that you kind of received from the watermelon woman was overwhelming and how were you kind of able to navigate through that well i think the wrongest thing for me was that you know that at that time the people who were fighting that nea battle did not reach out to me to include me and the way that the watermelon woman was not included in in her life you know it was it's like why didn't why didn't they have me join them 
when they were going to Congress or speaking and about the arts. So yeah. that was wrong to begin with. But, you know, Sheila Jackson Lee did stand up and say the right thing. And, and that was great. But, it, you know, it as, you know, Hollywood always loves uh, ingenue and, you know, and that's what I was. So, um, and I moved to California with Alex, uh, yeah, who's teaching, got his teaching job at Pitzer. So I didn't necessarily want to go to California. So <laughs> I was able to teach at the Claremont Colleges where they got this job. And it was kind of the great thing. I could use my MFA that way, right? As well as think of other ideas to make my own work. So that was yeah. really my next move to do. And the controversy only made things, you know, me more visible as all controversies do. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. And again, there's no, there's no internet. There's a little bit of internet, but there's no internet at this time, right? So you're talking about newspapers, you're talking about, you know, being there in person again. You have to really think about the way, you know, analog, analog life. It's way different. Um, And to be visible in an analog world, it's, it's hard being black, brown, queer, anything other than what, you know, the, the, the money, the whatever is allowed to get into those magazines and, and those editors, you see what's falling down right now. All of that still is in place. But think about it back then, it was even worse because there was yeah. no all alternative media to really be seen or had the funding to, to even make work. So, you know, think we're, it's a different world. So that's yeah. all I have to say. Yeah, it's definitely a ever-changing world. Even look at smartphones and how exponentially different life was when even we first thought of what cell phones were to what they are now. So, no, I can definitely. Or the shows that are out there that you know are oh, yeah. talking about queer life now. I mean, you know, storytelling that has advanced. Showrunners who are making shows about you know fifties gay activists and you know, pose itself and just, yeah. you know, legendary. And I mean, it's changed so radically, you know, Netflix itself, um, with how that changed black lives in radical ways. You remember when Netflix first started, that was yeah. like, there were so many black films that people were just making like in their <laughs> homes with their groups of people that were getting bought by Netflix, which are still, you know, some of them, the popular ones, there's still traces of them there, but they're these smaller, real like real independent black film yeah um but it's amazing right yeah but even you know speaking kind of on that of how you know netflix is kind of a vehicle now especially you know with them kind of coming around on black lives matter movement and them you know when you launch your Netflix app, you know, you're visibly seeing, you know, we selected these curated black, well, I don't know if they're curated or not, but maybe it's the algorithm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you see at yeah, least, you know, the black films, you know, that we have here, you know, watch them. Uh, but, you know, in 96, you know, that obviously was not a thing. And, you know, I actually, I kind of wish, well, not even kind of, I very much wish that this would have been a movie, The Watermelon Woman, I would have seen, you know, I wish it would have had like a life on Cinemax or on Stars because, you know, if it would have, if I would have saw this as a young black person growing up, like uh, I'm not queer, but if I would have saw this growing up, like I would have been very, very much, you know, had the mindset to go into filmmaking to think it was a real thing. Mm-hmm. So I am, you know, I definitely thank you for creating the movie. and I'm definitely sorry that it didn't kind of have that life. But I do think, though, you know, hopefully it is kind of getting a resurgence because I, you know, discovered the movie this year a couple of months ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely thankful, you know, that this movie does exist. Yeah, it's, it's happening. I mean, don't get me wrong. And, you know, it didn't have the super great life that it had, you know, uh, Black films have today. Like, you know, it was not um, nowhere near like Black Panther or anything. Um, yeah. But it did like keep me alive as an artist to do my work. I mean, basically it funded my ability to be a creative yeah. and continue those creative projects in my life. Look, I got to go around the world like three or four times with all the pieces I've made. I've been to Cannes Film Festival. I've been to, lived in Amsterdam. I've done great things all because I, you know, made the watermelon woman really. 
all because yeah. of, you know, even further back, you know, Hattie McDaniel did, you know, Gone with the Wind and took her award. You know what I'm saying? It's like um, this continued legacy of, you know, let's, let's keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, who, who cares anyway, and by any means necessary, you know? And, and that's the most important thing for, for us to be, you know, seen and, uh, in all blacknesses, in yeah. all shades of black. Black has so many shades. I think uh, it was Tupac that said, give me the money, keep the fame. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can definitely get with that. I can get with that. What makes me want to get close to someone and snuggle? Fear. Salutations. I'm Melisette. And on A Frightful Fret with Melisette, I read classic horror stories combining audiobooks and audio drama into a podcast. Come away with me into the darkness and let me make your ears tingle with a sensation of terror. A Frightful Fret with Melisette. Available everywhere podcasts are and find us at frightfulfret.net. Don't forget. But talking a little bit about the 90s and, you know, the creative process of that, I think overall the, the 90s were, you know, a golden era for Black filmmaking. But, you know, for women and queer women in particular, you know, the opportunities to create on like a like a larger scale just kind of weren't there. Looking back, I know you said, you know, obviously, you know, the Watermelon Woman took you to places that, you know, you may have never gone if you never created that movie. But looking back, though, kind of at the 90s and even the 2000s, do you think that things, do you kind of wish that things were kind of done differently? Or do you think, you know, everything happens for a reason? You know, everything happens for a reason. The next project I wanted to do after the Watermelon Woman was have a kid. And um, I knew that was not ever going to happen with the kind of filmmaking I was doing. And nor had I ever, you know, the thing is, I was not thinking about Hollywood. I was yeah. not, that. that's not why I made the Watermelon Woman. I didn't make it to, I made it to become international filmmaker more. And that's the way that, you know, there was sort of like the Spike Lee of it. And then there was like more international film, like film yeah. art and, you know, the criterion type of stuff too, you know. And that's sort of the where I was thinking it, more like that sort of auteur, you know, indie, Sundancey worldy thing at, at, at minimum. Yeah. Um, wasn't even out there. But the Sundance, the way that, that this started like in the late 90s, that's where Sundance type of stuff. So it, it was not a goal for me. And it just happened that, you know, my filmmaking style was one where you know, people, we were landing right now, you know, in, in narrative storytelling on, on, on media, in media. So I, I have to say that I was able to do things with that, you know, in other ways. Again, I was able to go through it again and do Stranger Inside. You know, just, it allowed me to have a life yeah. um, and a life lived. Um, and that's the most important thing to me. But of course, there were moments where I was just like, what? You know, come on, I just did all this and nobody sees me. But, and I'm, I'm broke. I'm brokeity broke. But I, I also made the smart path of kind of using my MFA to teach. So I was always teaching. There was always somebody who could, you know, because I did the Word of My Woman, I could, you know, screen it there, here and there. There's lots of, you know, little checks coming in to do this and that. So, um, that, you know, that, that granted me those abilities that, that survival so the coins you know were there so that's about it even kind of talking about that um with your pivot into education how was that how was it um uh, becoming a teacher and getting in higher ed you know that was the only way that i think to one of the few places then i don't think it's going to ever exist that way again but to be a black uh, or, or person of color or queer or whatever artist who could get paid securely with a you know have summers off and, you know, but there's a, the, the white towers of, you know, are, are falling right now with COVID and you know, a variety of other things. So um, as, as well as, you know, the real, the money behind, you know, histories of, of the Academy is not a, a safe place anymore. So, yeah. but at one point it was, and to be a sort of a, a black academic um, <laughs> was sort of like the best 
safest thing if you had ideas you wanted to create if you wanted to write you know you wanted to study this and that so i was on that path you know um, okay. as well and and partner at the time was also an academic so it was just the, the you know film and filmmaking and film studies go well together i mean one thing that i also promote or beyond under you know making film is also media literacy yeah. um, we we have to learn how to understand these images uh, and where they come from and you know uh, and take control of that people take these things so wrong and stuff is happening that we are not really talking about and we have to kind of break them down better um yeah. and the things that people believe about images um, without education is, is atrocious. That's about how I got there. Oh, cool. Cool. And so, you know, after, you know, Wonder Woman and getting into education, now you're directing, you, have you switched over full time to just episodic television now? Now I have. Yeah. After um, sort of, it was all about, um, I finally got the, I had finally got the, not just the adjunct job, but I had the tenure check job here on San Francisco State University, living in Oakland. Finally, you know, my kids uh, got in college, Cooper Union, you know, happy, you know, happily single at that point. I think I was, you know, baby mamas on the other coast is sort of happy <laughs> with me, but never really. And other kids going to college, I was just like in the right place. Watermelon Woman had turned 20 and people saw that again. And, you know, I'm out there um, thinking about a new feature and I just got the Academy and I got a, uh, a MacArthur, uh, not MacArthur, I'm sorry. Uh, I got a, a Guggenheim. And um, so I was, that's, I want a MacArthur, but I got a, a Guggenheim. <laughs> and um, I met Ava at a, at a screening of the 13th. Oh, nice. And everything, ever since then, it, it changed. She came in, I was there, and she walked up to me and said, oh my God, Sister Cheryl. I said, Sister Ava, you know, you go. <laughs> and it's like, I love your work. She's like, I love your work. My God, I can't believe we're meeting. We chat, chat, chat. And then the next thing you know, it was like, hey, Cheryl, do you want to direct Queen Sugar? Nice. I, said, I said, what about Queen Sugar first? And she said, do you want to direct? And I said, sure. She said, uh, two episodes. And I was like, oh, okay sure all right and then she said all right get your you know i'll email you give me your digits whatever and then she left because she was you know just saying coming in and out of the um, reception and i turned to the person i was with and i just looked around the room and i just said is it she's are there agents and managers in here because <laughs> i need some help right <laughs> she said, who's agent who's gonna you know is going to rep me. So that's where it started. And uh, the academy couldn't accept it that I was working in. And uh, I had asked for some break. I was trying, I wanted to keep that job. I thought it was really, and so I had to let it go. That was a whole track oh. of life, you know, I think. Um, but I, I use that, that, that now, and I think it helps a lot with me as a director, um, having that knowledge base. But I've been doing episodic since then, yeah. So how was the, uh, the experience of working on the show with Avra and uh, Queen Slim? How was that? Which one? With uh, Avra and Queen Slim? I didn't, uh, on Queen Slim? Oh, Queen Sugar, you mean? Oh, my! I do this with my friends all Queen the time. I, Queen and Slim, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's, that's a movie with Lena, wait. Yeah, um, no, I, I know, it's, it's dyslexia, I'm sorry. Um, and okay, um, Queen Sugar was great, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want to throw down the, the project you've been, you know, struggling to make, which was Black as Blue at the time, and I'm still, you know, trying to make it, and stop to go and learn and use big equipment, <laughs> work with cast and, you know, lighting and, you know, be in charge of everything and, you know, just move up. Um, yeah, that was amazing. And, and it continues to be amazing to, to have the privilege to, A, shoot other people's work with, you know, putting your ideas into it, using the latest technology and using technology which you would never have access to on your own to do and, to, and, and complete that in 15 to 20 days. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'm sitting here waiting for it to come back. You know, it's like so amazing. I mean, it just you could never do that before uh, and do it well. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm blessed. 
Do you prefer creating episodic television or feature film creation? You know, um, I'm waiting to make another feature film, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I prefer both. I, I love features. You get to really do long form well, you know. But these episodes are now, some of them are like features, you know, length. And, and then that scale and the breadth of storytelling. But again, with features, you get to tell a bigger story. Yeah. But there's, there's, a, there's a fine line going on now that you can't really you know, tell the difference. So mm-hmm. in the sense of the, people, you know, the lengths, the, the scales, I mean, would you consider a, a limited series a feature? You know, like um, even like Hollywood. Like Chernobyl or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's just a long feature. Yeah, <laughs> with the pop- possibility of another season or what? That to me, that if I have to go back to my old work, that was she don't fade to the potluck and the passion, right? Yeah, hmm. I'm thinking a little bit about what you said, kind of now how it's just kind of all blended together right now, and especially with binge culture, yeah, what is the difference? So yeah. <laughs> what is the difference? I mean, <laughs> you, you're hooked. <laughs> yeah, you're hooked. There's more way. options. You're hooked with more options. I mean, I think there's less options for sure in the the world of feature film for for seeing these type of stories. You know, there there are them. I mean, look, it took for the second lesbian feature film to come out like 11, 12 years, which is yeah, Raya. So from the watermelon moment to Raya, my God, that's like crazy. And where's the next one? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I definitely hear you on that. I know. But I'm, you can see I, another show. I mean, the thing is, you'll, you'll see a show. You'll see the <laughs> 20s, right? Or something like that, right? There's shows with these characters. Yeah. Twin was interesting. Actually, I just, I stumbled on the uh, that show actually this month, actually, a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. All right. So the last question, maybe the hardest. <laughs> Of everything that you've watched so far this year, whether it's uh, movie, television, TikTok video, whatever, what's the best thing you've watched in 2020? Ooh, I don't know, really. So much, so much. Uh, um, the Watchmen. Oh, excellent show. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent show. Mm-hmm. Just, just fucked it all up for you, you know. It was really good. That was really good. <laughs> It was great. You can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. Yeah. After the watching, you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. Yeah, I know the creator, he's, uh, he said that he made The Watchmen without any plans for a sequel at all. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually a really kind of great attitude, like leave everything on the table for, even if it's a one, you know, one-off season, you know, just have everything on the table. And if you decide to pick it up later, go for it. But no, Watchmen, right. Watchmen was really excellent. HBO does a lot of excellent work. They do. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I, my episode of Lovecraft will be coming soon. So, oh, yeah. um, so that's going to be, that's the next thing that's going to be out there for, for people to have fun. And HBO does put care and time. As I'm saying, even working on my episode was sort of like a feature. Because yeah. it was about a whole like different you know storyline within the the world of the you know the the series and so i was able to it was like examining a b storyline as an a storyline and it it was fun (laughs) it was great it was so great and the thing is you learn so much during episodic right now you get to do vfx you get to do you're working with teams in different ways I had a, a a real learning curve for myself, and and it would I don't know how long it would take me to do that in in the film world, um, yeah. to be able to you know be even allowed to touch, you know that, that type of camera or any any all, all the guards are there the white guards would never allow anybody of color you know to make those type of films so easily I mean to even enter those places to get educated with that level it's always the the white boys club you know, yeah. who who you know are at all those events who are privy to everything it's it's just i mean you think it's changed but it's not really yeah. so um, i'm glad we're having this little window everybody run through it's like indiana jones come on El. <laughs> come on. Everybody um, in. america is definitely the temple of doom <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Just keep on, keep on, come on, last one. Slide yeah. on out. Because we're going to take it from you. <laughs> but um, it definitely is, uh, you, know, we're, we're not, you know, we're just down here in the middle. Um, there's a higher level that it's never going to change. And I'm happy to be, where, you know, where I am in the middle and feeling the change that, and hopefully if we can push hard enough, we'll be able to shake them up as well. Oh, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, Cheryl, I greatly appreciate your time. I did embarrass myself. and I, I swear it was a dyslexia. But <laughs> mm, okay, no worries. But I All really... Right. Okay. I really do appreciate your time and thank you for taking the time and okay. continue to work. I'll definitely check out your work. All right. Okay. Be blessed. Bye-bye. You too. Have a good one. Be kind. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Never get down. It's all going to be okay. All going to be all right. We're one people. We're one family. We all live in the same house. Not just American House, but the world. I wish you well. Find Kat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S H O I N M A D L O V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Kat, K A T, and Mark, M A R C. Read us at catseesmovies.tumblr.com and the Mark Rob, T H E M A R C R O B.wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a hyphen podcast production. Are you not entertained?